Welcome to the Kingdom Life Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Jamie Dixon. For more great content, visit klcmaine.com. All right, you guys ready to jump in? I got to get everything ready. We got notes and we got slides and all kinds of stuff. So um, I, I want to, I'm going I'm to quickly review. And for those that um, don't, haven't, weren't with us last week or haven't been following along, um, I really encourage you to catch up. It's, it's, I, I am, in, I'm shocked. I, well, no, I knew, but then when it's confirmed, uh, I mean, it's like, you know something and then like, it's kind of confirmed, Hey, this is a really important conversation. You're, you're, it's just kind of a surprise, you know? Um, and, and, and it's incredible how the misplaced identity of the church, um, in our modern era has caused so much toxicity and dysfunction in the lives of believers. Does that make sense? Like, when the church isn't who she's supposed to be, believers will have an unhealthy relationship with the local church or the ecclesia. And, uh, and when there's an unhealthy relationship, many believers don't walk in the fullness of their identity and calling. And so we have a lot of people that are not walking in what God called them to walk, to, walk in because the church is not doing what she was supposed to do or be who she's supposed to be. So as we get into this, I know that we're talking about the church, but I hope you have the ability to begin to extract this like incredible information about your life and walk with the Lord. Um, Last week, we kind of un, we unveiled this uh, idea of the Ecclesia, and it's defined as this, the Ecclesia, which is the word for the church, is the gathering of the called out ones. Their gathering makes their assembly holy. As we got into last week, um, uh, you know, last week we started this conversation about how uh, when it comes to the Ecclesia, that was not a Christian terminology. It wasn't necessarily something that was created the moment the church was planted um, uh, in, the, in the book of Acts. It was actually a secular terminology that was a, a place or gathering or assembly of people that were a part of a community where the king would make a decree and then governors or in that culture apostles would then bring the king's decree, go into the borough that they oversaw and they would deliver the king's decree in an assembly called the Ecclesia. And so when Jesus died and rose again and he gave the Holy Spirit and then he's commissioning apostles or governors to bring the message of the kingdom into every nation and every tribe and every tongue, he goes, here's the wisdom and strategy is plant the Ecclesia, gather the people together and teach them everything that I taught you, which is the king has made a decree and apostolic governors are to give it to the people and the people are to walk out the king's decrees. This is the church. And how many of you guys know that the, uh, the, the uh, holiness is not on the building? The holiness is not on the movement or the logo or the branding, or the organization, the holiness of God is on the people. The assembly doesn't make you holy, you make this place holy, because you are his beloved. The church um, is the wisdom of God to steward what Jesus began. The church is a vehicle to further the agenda of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we, we, I mean, it's incredible. We're going to today get into Acts chapter three and chapter four. And uh, I think any pastor would be really happy at the metrics of the book of Acts. 
Because like the day that they get baptized in the Holy Spirit, they preach the gospel, 3,000 people get saved. And then all of a sudden they heal a lame man at the gate called Beautiful. They preach the gospel, they get arrested. And as they're getting arrested, 5,000 get saved. Pretty good metrics. And the church is multiplying quickly. It's advancing. The gospel is advancing. This idea, this mystery, this cataclysmic event of the resurrection of Jesus has called all the nations in the surrounding earshot of the gospel to begin to percolate and come to Jerusalem to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church is exploding. And the wisdom of God was is make apostles, plant churches. Make apostles, plant churches. Make apostles, plant churches. Plant churches, eat around tables. Disciple one another. Do everything. Immerse your lives in the body of believers and take what the apostles were teaching you and live this thing every day, every single moment of your life and grow into the extraordinary reward of the accomplished works of Jesus Christ by the receiving of the gospel. The church is the wisdom of God to steward what Jesus started. The church is a vehicle to further the agenda of the kingdom of heaven. The church is not the finish line. The church is the vehicle that deliver a people to where God is taking us. The church exists to glorify God, equip believers, and create community. Remember in Acts where they sat together, they broke bread, they were all of one heart, one mind, they sat under the apostles' doctrine and they did life together. The church exists to glorify God, equip believers, and create community. The New Testament church was an organic, grassroots, authentic movement. It was not ceremonial, ceremonial or pressured by tradition. Um, you know, one of the things that I love when I read the book of Acts is that um, you can see this organic movement. These guys didn't know what they were doing. They were not professional church planters. They, they didn't have a church in a box, go build it in a day. They weren't given funding for this thing. They didn't, they didn't have the resources or the know-how. No one gave them the blueprint. And they were, they were truly just doing what Jesus taught them to do. And they lived organically in the midst of each other. And the apostles taught what Jesus taught them. And the people fully immersed them, their, themselves into the teachings of Jesus that was delivered through the apostles. And, and how many of you guys know that over 2,000 years of history, we were not uh, instructed to lose the organic nature of the early church. We, it wasn't supposed to become like Christian culture where it's just like you do what you do and you go to church and you, don't, you can't remember your salvation moment but you were raised in a certain church movement and it's kind of all you know and you go about the motions and how many, how many know it wasn't his plan? There's an organic movement in a people whose hearts were fully attached and lives fully immersed in the movement of the gospel. And they ate bread and they, it wasn't about when they met or how they met or where they met, houses or parking lots. It didn't matter where they met. It, it, all that mattered was that they were submitting their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and advancing the agenda of heaven. The church and the ecclesia is supposed to be an organic movement and to never lose its authenticity. They did not clock in or clock out, but they carried the corporate experiences and revelation into their life, their family, and their friendships. All right, we're gonna, this week, I wanna, I wanna get into this story um, in Acts chapter three, and uh, we'll, we'll read verses uh, one through nine together here in just a second. Um, 
But in, in Acts chapter three, um, I, I want you to stay immersed in this like idea of how um, raw and real and not knowing what to expect. There's no programs, there's no outreaches. Um, every experience is a new experience. Jesus is no longer under the scene. These guys are now the leaders of what Jesus started and now they're the ones leading another group of band of disciples and teaching this stuff. And here they are. Um, the church just saw 3,000 people get saved. Um, the leaders of the church um, is, uh, are, you know, the leaders of the government are not in favor um, Caiaphas is still on the scene and he's still ticked off. Um, and in Acts chapter three, verse one, it says, now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which was called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Now, I want you to understand is that this man being laid, um, there was this idea in the Hebraic culture that if you were lame, if you were barren, um, most barren women were divorced and became prostitutes. And, and if you were lame or blind or ill or sick and it was incurable and it handicapped your life, you were considered invalid and not blessed by God. And so there was a gate that led into these inner courts that were, continued a, that were considered a sanctuary or a holy place. And the reason why this man who's lame was being laid at the gate was because he was believed to be rejected and was not allowed in past the gate. And so if you imagine, here you are standing on your two feet and you're walking into a place that where the believers call holy and everyone that was rejected by God is outside the gate asking for money and you have to pass through this environment to get to a place where other people are not allowed. And so here they are, and they're going to the gate called Beautiful. And it says as they, they walked, this man asking for alms, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms, and fixing his eyes on him uh, with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave him his attention, and expecting to read something from them. And Peter then said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and he lifted him up and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. Could you just imagine all of a sudden these the muscles that were, degenerated and, and bones that were crippling and folding on each other all of a sudden are getting strength and cracking into place as they pull him to his feet. He took him by the right hand, he lifted and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. So he leaping up stood and walked and then entered into the temple with them. One of the greatest miracles in this moment is not only the demonstration of power to heal, but shame was taken off his life in the same moment and he walked in with them calling blessed and received and loved by God. 
And all the people saw him walking and everyone began to praise God. And then, then uh, they knew that it was he who sat begging alms and they saw him. We know who you are. You are there every day asking us for money. And then all of them, the thousands in the masses experience and witness the power and the presence of God right before their eyes. Now, everyone's looking with wonder and amazement. And then Peter, man, Peter's become a good preacher, hasn't he? Peter gets up in front of everyone. He goes, I know that you're all looking in amazement and wonder, but I need you to understand that there's only by one name that this man was healed, saved, and delivered. And his name is Jesus. And he starts preaching the beauty and the extravagance of Jesus. And then it says um, in verse four, now as they spoke to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they were teaching the people and preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and they put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. However, everyone say however. Many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men that were saved came to about 5,000. We don't even know about the women and children. Here they are, because I mean, I love this scene. They're being arrested and pulled away. Saying, Jesus is the only way. I was like, yeah. Altar call just goes on without them there, and just 5,000 people get saved as these men are being arrested. You know, what, what, what's, uh, first of all, I want to say this, is that this is the first moment in the book of Acts where I feel like I'm reading John chapter 9, 10, and 11, can you just imagine that this is exactly what Jesus did? Everyone that walked past the prostitutes and the lame, Jesus stopped for them. What did the, what did the apostles do? They did exactly what Jesus did. This is an exact gospel moment. They, they, they looked at him with confidence. Gold and silver I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. And he pulled them up and then crowds gathered and listened to the preaching of the gospel. This is an exact replication of what Jesus did, but Jesus is not in the room. This is really important because um, one of the things in Luke 24, in the commissioning of the church we went over last week, in Luke 24, 48, Jesus turned to the disciples and he said, hey guys, listen, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and I will make you witnesses. Everyone say witnesses. I will make you witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then again in, in Acts 1.8, his final commissioning before he goes, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come. Right before he says that and he gives that commissioning, he says it again. He goes, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and I will make you witnesses. The idea of a witness is in, in Matthew 28.18, Jesus said again, where he says, I'm commissioning you now to go into all the earth to preach the gospel and teach them everything that I taught you. And uh, this idea of a witness is defined as those who are called to prove and to demonstrate the reality of Jesus. Jesus picked 12 people to change the world. And he did life with them and he taught them everything he knew. And then he asked them to now be witnesses of this season of life that you just lived in everything that I showed you in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. I have proven this to be true. 
that Jesus spent two years sowing in to these men's lives, pouring into them, raising them up, discipling them, cultivating their mind and their heart and their reality so that they could become demonstrating witnesses of the evidence that what Jesus said was true. That when he rose from the dead and was with us no more, although that we had the Holy Spirit, there would be a people that would be able to say, that we're still here saying we have witnessed these things and we're here to continue to demonstrate that what Jesus said is true. Witnesses are those who are called to prove and demonstrate the reality of Jesus. The church is not the witness. The ecclesia is not the witness. You are the witness. The church's only responsibility, what the church's responsibility is, is to equip believers to become witnesses. The reality of the church is this, is that the church exists in these moments, in these glimpses, in these flashes that we are together and we do life. But every time we gather, there is a commissioning to now go and to demonstrate the goodness of God into every sphere. You work and you live and you raise children and you interact with your family and you go to Starbucks and you go to Selah and you go to Home Depot and you go to Walmart. And I'm commissioning you everywhere the, the soles of your feet would tread, become a witness of the, of the goodness of God. How do you do that, Jamie? By demonstrating the goodness of God wherever you go you have become witnesses of these things and now the church is here to cultivate the reality of the goodness of God and to commission you into every sphere of society to go and to become witnesses of the goodness of God demonstrate what God has done how does the church do this by doing exactly what Jesus did what did the apostles do exactly what Jesus did they lived in the midst of the people Man, it's really weird how badly Christians want to separate from the world. We just want out. We just want to, we just like want to live so separately that we're not in it at all. Preserve my plot of land. Don't mess up what I have, you know? The reality is, is that, is that as believers, we can't separate from the world. We've got to rush into the world. You know, like... I gave a whole little talk on the Grammys. Everyone's like, turn off the Grammys, never watch it. I'm kind of like, no, I want to like put this in front of the whole church and go, watch it, everybody. Watch this. You go, oh, no, why would you do that? Because I want our hearts to break for the condition of the world and be motivated with empathy to rush in and bring healing because we carry the bomb of healing to the world. We will, we will lack empathy for the condition of the world if we fully remove ourselves from the proximity of the world. I'm not saying entertain a bunch of crap for the sake of entertainment. I'm saying engage the world because you have become evidential witnesses of the world. The church did not separate from the world. They lived in the midst of the people. Number two, Jesus associated to the marginalized. They didn't, they didn't move past the people at the gate because Jesus told them to eat with sinners and tax collectors. He told them to stop and have a meal with Zacchaeus. They, he told them to let the prostitute wash your feet. He told them that when the crowds are saying, what about those people and what are they doing? He said, I want you to not care what the crowds are saying. I want you to sit and eat with them because they are God's beloved. They associated to the marginalized because it's exactly what Jesus taught them to do. Listen, guys, 
when the church stops in helping the body of believers engage the marginalized, we've completely lost our assignment. And lastly, they demonstrated the gospel before it was earned. Jesus taught them that people belong, they, people belong before they believe. And he always brought people in that had no right of being allowed into the presence of Jesus or being called holy. But, they, but the, the power came outside of the gate, not on the other side of the gate. I need you to think about that for a second. On one side of the gate, you are unholy. On the other side of the gate, you are holy. And that which was in the way of going through that gate was the very thing that was hanging like shame over his head. And the power showed up on the unlovely side, not on the holy side. I'm gonna say that again. The power showed up on the unholy side, not on the holy side. Why? Because that man belonged in the kingdom before he even believed. And it was actually the love to stop, to look him and engage him in the eyes. Do you realize that everybody did this, but he stopped and he engaged them. He looked him in the eyes and he goes, I have exactly what you need. And they, that man belonged before he believed. Jesus taught the disciples that. The demonstration of power is always partnered with the revelation of Jesus. I mean, when, when, the, when power showed up, they, they uh, you know, when, the, when power showed up, everyone had, uh, gave attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know so many, we are in the most heady intellectual culture in the history of the world. We are Greek personified. Do you guys, are you guys with me? I mean, we are in a postmodern generation that at the turns of centuries, we were just encouraging to question truth at every angle and to throw it against the wall and to reorganize it. And then, you know, postmodern art is this idea of taking something beautiful, rearranging it so you can't tell what it is anymore, putting it back on the wall and saying, isn't that beautiful? And that's what we do with truth. We take truth and go, mm, don't love how it looks like there. I'm going to break it all apart, reassemble it to the way that I like it, put it on the wall, wall call it beautiful, and have, invite everyone to come. And if you don't like it, that's fine. You can have your own truth. That's postmodern thought. And this is what we've done with everything. And, and, and we all want to engage that conversation. But at the end of the day, the arguing will never fix the postmodern idea. Why? Because it's, it's protected by the idea that everyone is allowed to their own perception of truth. But the reality is, is that truth is truth and you can't change that. And because of that, we cannot argue somebody's truth, but we can demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit, capture their attention, create longing and favor with their intellect, and then preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know any other way around it. You want to get on universities and see the power of God show up. You want to go into intellectual environments see the power of God or, and see the gospel be effective. You want to see Google executives get saved. We have to become acquainted with the power of the Holy Spirit because the early church was, and there's no arguments in the early church because power was demonstrated before the preaching of the revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> oh, did I go past it? I'm getting some help from the back of the room, so I apologize. Let's go back to that. Demonstrations of the gospel are the witnessing acts of Christ that create favors in community. The gospel without demonstration is a theory without evidence. The gospel without demonstration is theory without evidence. And listen, I've said this before and I'll say it again, is that I know a lot of people will try to um, create theology out of their personal experience. But can I just say your experience is not infallible truth. 
your experience is incredibly prone to your inability to understand where God was in your experience. Just because you don't have revelation doesn't mean that you are authorized to preach your experience as truth. And the reality is, is the only thing that we have is we have the scriptures to base our truth on, no matter what your experience is. Because I can say this, because I know the Lord and I honor him as God, I know that when something that he says is true is not happening before my eyes, I know that he is not valuable, broken, and, and, have, and struggling with his emotions. He is not a man that he would lie. He is not a man that he would uh, be swept up in his emotions and change who he is because he's upset with something. I know that if there is something going on uh, and I don't understand it, I know that I am the person that used to come into alignment, not him. Is this making sense? And because of that, I can say this, is that the, the scriptures have given us no permission to believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is not readily available today for every single believer. And that there is no preaching of the gospel without the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we create a theology that says that we don't need the power of the Holy Spirit, we just need the preaching of the gospel, somebody has not been reading their Bible. They've only been living out of their experience. It feels uncomfortable in here. Are we all right? People will say, well, these things are, don't happen very often. Are you kidding me? It literally said that Jesus said, you'll do greater things than I. And at the end of John, it said, if all the miracles of Jesus were written in a book, that there'd be nothing to, there'd be no book that can handle it. Over the course of two years, he had so many testimonies of miracles that there's no book on earth that could hold the stories of what he did. It says that many signs and wonders were done by the apostles in the early church. That doesn't sound like an every so often, once in my life, this one thing happened that proved God was real. What are you talking about? So many miracles that they can't even name them or title them are going on. Why? Because that was normal Christianity. And the, only, the theology that says that power is every so often, don't get greedy, don't get this, don't get that, be, be, receive what you can, they're not reading their Bible, they're living from their experience. We have to become acquainted with power. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, the gospel is without demonstration. is a theory without evidence. It says faith is a substance of things that we hope for, the evidence of things that are not seen. In, in 1 Corinthians 2, 3 through 5, uh, Paul said, I did not come to you with wise and persuasive speech, but demonstrations of the power of the Holy Spirit so that your faith would not be in man, but in God alone. There's a lot, there's a reasons why when a man falls from sin in a church, that much of the church crumbles under the weight of a man's failure. Why? Because the majority of the church's faith is in that man, not in the gospel of Jesus Christ and their personal walk with the Lord. The responsibility of, of pastors is not to get you to believe what I say, but to turn you to the scriptures for you to walk in your own relationship with the Lord. That if I fall before your eyes, that your faith is not shaken because your relationship with God stands strong and clear. Does that make sense? <clears throat> demonstrations of faith are practiced in the church, but their purpose for the marketplace. Yeah, I don't have a slide for that one. Is it on the, is it on the notes? I don't think so. The demonstrations of faith are practiced in the church, 
but their purpose for the marketplace. We love to lay hands on the sick. We love the miracles happen in the church. But it says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And there's a call for the church to go into the world to preach the gospel and to demonstrate. We get to practice the prophetic here. Isn't that fun? Turn to your neighbor, give a prophetic word. If it's wrong, that's okay. Hug it out. You know, like... Woo! We get to practice the prophetic here. We get to grow in our hearing of the voice of the Lord. We get to share testimonies. We get to pray for legs. We get to pray for backs. We get to pray for headaches. We get to practice our faith here. But it's not to stay here. It's to actually increase the capacity of our faith to demonstrate it in the marketplace. It's not for the evangelist. It's for every believer. Look at Acts 4, 1. You know, they, here they are preaching, and then they get handcuffed. However... Many were saved. 5,000 people get saved as they're being dragged to jail. They're, they're being just lit up inside of the prison cell by Caiaphas and the governors. And they're, they're, they're accusing them and doing all these different things, right? <clears throat> and um, the, here they are being accused. But here's what I want to, this is one of my biggest points this morning that I want to present to us. Is that the gospel thrives. I might need some help in the back of the room, the slides. Oh, is there? Okay. Um, the gospel thrives in the adversity of unbelieving environments. The gospel thrives in the adversity of unbelieving environments. The goal of the church is not to become popular in a city. The goal of the church is not to become popular in the city. The goal of the church is, is, uh, is gospel effectiveness in the lives of every individual. The common ingredient between the early church's explosion and every revival and awakening is prayer and adversity. Do you guys realize how much we have fallen out of love with adversity? totally against our human nature. But just as much as I'll say, like you can't believe for miracle working, like you can't believe in the gospel and not believe in miracle working power because scripture says, you also can't believe um, in like a flourishing life in the presence of God without the presence of adversity. It's all through there. Jesus literally promised it. There's not a single promise that everything is gonna be beautiful and awesome. Tons of promises it's gonna suck. But I'm with you. So many, so many people are like, well, all these bad things are going on. Where's God? He said that it was gonna happen. Where's God? He's here with you. He said you'll have many adversities and trials in the world, but I will be with you to the end of the days. The common ingredient between every, the early church's explosion was that miracle signs wonders preaching the gospel and imprisonments. They prayed, imprisoned, 5,000 people were being saved. And then you look at the early church. If you go through revival history with us, next week I'll be in a whole thing and we're gonna talk about the power of prayer for revival, but we're also gonna pray, we're gonna talk about the condition of the world before every single revival in the history of humanity since the day that Jesus was resurrected. And I will show to you that there has never been a revival that came out of a season of comfort and convenience, only revivals that came out of adversity. 
We all are praying, God, show up in America. We want revival. But we're not willing to accept that the condition of the world will be conducive to the revival that God sends. I, I think it's time, and I want to give, um, give a, um, a theology of adversity that we could like, adopt as our own. I think it's time for us to embrace adversity, not to not know who we are, not to lose power that we can go over, not to become masochistic and be like, God's teaching me. God has not authored the adversity of your life. He's just the one that stands in the midst of it. He didn't create the fire that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in, but he did stand in the middle of it so they would not be burned. Are you guys hearing me? We are still in a fallen condition of humanity and society, and we are living in the tremors of it, but he will stand with us and we won't be burned. I think it's time that we embrace adversity, not as our inheritance, but as the environment where our inheritance is obtained. I'm gonna say that again. We need to embrace adversity, not as my inheritance, but the environment where my inheritance is obtained. In Revelation chapter five, there's just, I'm, gonna, I'm, like, I'm gonna take like a 30 minute teaching and do it in like two minutes. You guys ready? I feel like this series I'm talking so fast. Um, okay, in Revelation chapter five, John sees a man holding a scroll with seven seals in front and back. And he knows that in the culture of Rome and society, that that seven seals, there's only one legal document and it's a last will and inheritance. And in order to open that inheritance, the person who wrote it has to die and the person it's written to has to be alive. And so John looks at it and goes, there's an inheritance there. And he goes, I wanna know what's inside of it to the point where he's so much in anguish that he's weeping and crying saying, who can open the scroll and loose its seals and then the elder comes up behind him and goes hey don't cry for the lamb has been slain the person who wrote it is dead and the person it's written to has overcome the line of the tribe of judah and he's here right and so he knows that the law has been fulfilled for the inheritance to be open and given and to be read in the in the in the assembly and so uh, the angels begin to sing and they, and they begin to sing this song. For you are slain and you've redeemed us by your blood and you have made us kings and priests and we will rule and reign with our God. The song of the inheritance is that Jesus is a king and a priest and he's redeemed us by the blood and he's made us kings and priests and we will rule and reign on the earth. Romans 8, 19, all creation's groaning and waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Why? Because creation is subjected to futility, not willingly, but the one who subjected in hope that all creation would get delivered into the same liberty of the sons and daughters of God, which means that, oh my gosh, the Grammys, oh, Sam Smith and oh, Satan Con in Boston, all these different things going on. The earth is groaning. Yeah. It's groaning for What? sons and daughters to know who they are right and then it says the seals begin to get cracked open the seven seals that are obtained inside is the inheritance cracks a seal death goes out cracks a seal cosmic earthquakes and comets hit the earth all this stuff happens right crack it open again another another seal gets cracked open all of a sudden sickness and disease goes out and that cracks another one, famine goes out. Cracks another one, wars and nations are breaking out. So many people have believed that that scroll was the releasing of these like seven 
spirits that will like lead to the end times. And can I tell you that's not what that means? Those seven seals are not the inheritance, nor are they a timeline, but they are an eternal reality of the things that will happen across the fallen nature of the world, but they are not the inheritance. They're only the things that open the inheritance in the church because wherever there is war, there will be revival. And wherever there is famine, there will be revival. Why? Because we're kings and priests and we will rule and reign in the midst of it. Wherever there is these adversities and these famines and these diseases and pandemics, there will be revival in the midst of it because the seals are not the inheritance. The inheritance is the inheritance, but the seals reveal the inheritance. We have to embrace adversity, not because God authors it, but we have to embrace adversity because it's the environment that the gospel becomes conducive to all humanity. There's a reason why in Exodus 21, the, the Israelites sin. And so God goes, hey, that was a bad choice. I'm gonna send vipers to come and bite you and you're gonna get sick, Right? It makes total sense. And so vipers go into the camp and they start biting Israelites. And then Moses stands up and goes, God has given us a solution. Go out into the desert. There's a golden serpent on a, on a pole that God told me to fashion and put out there. If you're sick, go look at it. And the moment you look at it, you're gonna be healed, right? In John three fourteen, it says that just like Moses raised, raised up the golden statue of a serpent, so Jesus must be lifted up that whoever would look at him would be healed. Amen. I need you to understand that God could have just killed the snakes. He didn't kill the snakes. He put a solution in the midst of the snakes. God didn't just remove sin. He raised Jesus up like a golden serpent for us to look at. Not because he could remove sin. He didn't remove sin. He just created a solution in the midst of it. Why? Because God has never shown us that he removes adversity. He just shows up and brings breakthrough in the middle of your adversity. He creates a solution in the middle of it. And we're going, where's God? He's creating a solution in the midst of your adversity. Is this making sense? We need to understand to embrace adversity and look for the opportunity to see the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. A lot of us aren't seeing the power of the Holy Spirit because we're not looking for the solution in the midst of it. We're asking him to take it away. In Acts 4, 29, one of my favorite verses. Now, Lord, they gather together in this home, right? And they're like getting in prison. The guys get out of prison. And they're like, all right, guys, this is gonna become a more regular thing. We need to do something. I'm almost done. We need to do something about this. And so they start to pray. In Acts 4.29, they say, So Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they would speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your Holy Spirit. And it says in that place was that God poured out his spirit and they left that place and began to preach the gospel again. I, do you understand that when they prayed, they didn't pray, God, take the adversity from our government away from us. What did they pray? Make us bold. Moses raised up a golden serpent. The father raised up Jesus. And Jesus has now established his church as the solution in the midst of the adversity in the climate of our society. And then what happens? They get boldness. They're preaching the gospel. Thousands are being saved. Acts 4.32 uh, I just want to make sure I, I'm just not great at slides. So, sorry. It's making sure I, 
Don't pass you guys up. Acts uh, 4.32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was on his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed as everyone had need. Do you guys realize that, you know what that is? is It's the exact same thing as Acts chapter two, where it says, and they gathered together in the apostles' doctrine and they gave to each other's had need and they broke bread from house to house. Do you guys realize that although the adversity grew, the strategy didn't change? Because they knew that their solution in the midst of adversity and all the climate of life was to not change their faithfulness. Adversity was not a sign for the Ecclesia to change with adversity, but for her to dig deeper and remain faithful. They knew their solution was in their faithfulness. The church was not to evolve, but to remain consistent in the face of adversity. The reality is, is that we have a really wrong theology about adversity, and we have to understand is that adversity is not a sign that you're off. It's not necessarily a sign that you're just in spiritual warfare. When I say that, I need you to understand, I... You know, I love what, what Bill John says. He goes, I'm not looking for a demon behind every bush, but there probably is one. I realize that there's a real spiritual reality, but I also know that one of the greatest tactics the enemy has is to distract us with demons instead of like keeping our eyes on the Lord. And so we're always looking for a demon behind everything, go to spiritual warfare when the reality is, is that we need to pray for boldness and remain faithful. Greatest act of war that we have is to remain faithful and not to get distracted by what he's called us to do. Stay the course. I love, I love, um, I have a friend who uh, every time he traveled, his, his family would get sick and like, and, and all these things would happen. Every time he'd, he'd go to like Afghanistan, he's preaching to the underground church at home, family's getting sick. He'd come home, he'd have all this calamity. And so he started doing this thing that whenever his, he'd go, whenever he would travel, if he got a report that something was going really wrong, he would go to the local ER and just start praying for the sick. And he goes, oh, so when I'm not home, you're going to mess with my family? Great. Then when I leave home, I'm going to go mess with yours, Satan. And so he goes in the ER and he starts winning souls. And guess what? The warfare at home stopped. Why? Because Satan is just a trash dog that needs to be trained. Don't mess with me because I'm more powerful than you. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That's a direct shot at Satan. He's a punk that plays games and you need to stand up to a bully and knock him out. How do you do that? By yelling in my prayer room. No, no. Go lay hands on the sick and go plunge hell of its reward. Is that all right? All right, stand, stand with me.